You guys, uh, this is this is a heck of a day for me, not just because we get to be here and be together and like, you know, it's our first kind of big gathering since COVID, but um, Barbara Walter earlier, brilliant future Pulitzer Prize winner and now Ann Applebaum, actual Pulitzer Prize winner, <laughs> um, Atlantic author and um, extraordinary thinker and historian um, on, on the world. Um, we, I think we're about to have a very different conversation than I thought we might have a week ago. Um, so let me just start by asking you, what's your assessment of the current state of affairs in Ukraine? Um, so first of all, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I feel far away from Ukraine here, and, um, and yet I think it's a story that means something to all of us. Um, what's happened in Ukraine is something that's genuinely extraordinary and unexpected. Um, a small country, a poor country with a small army, has now for six days held back against an army that was... Uh, that was meant to occupy it, was meant to control it, and was meant to be, uh, was meant to have absorbed it by now. Um, They've done it with, um, some with weaponry, some with defensive weapons, some of it is uh, is street smart, some of it is um, a resistance movement that has now been created by, you know, rappers and bakers and people who run coffee bars in Kiev who've been looking for saboteurs in the city. Um, and we have a really extraordinary story, a uh, kind of David and Goliath story of, of a, um, a country that really does not want to be occupied, that really wants to make sure the world understands that it's a real place, it has a real identity, and it doesn't want to be part of Russia. So let, let's take a half step back and then come back forward if we can. Um, the why for Putin. Is he, is he writing a historical wrong? Is Ukraine a threat to him? What's, to the extent you can parse it, what's, what's his mindset? So for Putin, Ukraine represents an existential threat, not because it had arms or weapons, not because it talked to NATO or because it, had, it, was, it was seeking to integrate with Europe, but because Ukraine um, is a country which is historically very close to Russia. You can describe it and think about it as a former Russian colony. It's a little bit like the relationship that Ireland once had to, to England. And yet Ukraine was choosing a different path. The Ukrainians did not want to be an autocratic kleptocracy. Um, They did not want to be ruled by a single person and a group of oligarchs with corrupt links to one another and to to their colleagues in Russia. Um, They wanted to be a real democracy, and they've they've held a series of street demonstrations and protests in 1991 and 2005, and most famously in 2014, to establish this idea. For Putin, this is a threat. Not, not that they will invade him, but that the idea, the idea of democracy, the idea that you can live, have a different kind of country, you know, if Ukraine succeeds in that, then maybe Russians will want it to. What, I mean, what's the big deal? It's, it's, a, it's a relatively big country. It's a trading partner. Yeah, you share a border. Like, wh- wh- why does this one matter so much to Putin? It's, it matters in the way, as I said, Ireland once mattered to England. Um, it's a former colony. There's a long cultural relationship. There are a lot of people who are intermarried. Lots of Ukrainians know Russians. They, a lot of Ukrainians speak Russian. Um, they're, they're, it's a bilingual country, half Ukrainian speaking and half Russian speaking. Um, and they feel themselves to be sort of generally part of the same cultural world, or historically they have. And so for that, for them to make a different choice, for them to become a democracy, for them to try to integrate with Europe, for them to become um, something very different from Russia, this was a challenge, an ideological challenge to Putin that he couldn't accept. Okay, so 
Roughly two weeks ago, you were in Munich, right? Security yes. conference, which, if my history is right, is is where we got Chamberlain and appeasement, right? That's right. Okay, so so what what happened in Munich, and was that at all a turning point in in getting to where we are today? So Munich, this is a conference that happens every year. It's usually quite boring. I've been on and off, you know, the sort of the great and the good from all over Europe and U.S. come mostly to talk about defense and security. And this year, the only topic was Ukraine. Everybody there knew that there were Russian troops all around the border of Ukraine. Um, and, th and there was a kind of consensus. There was an agreement among the Western allies, Germans, Americans, British, that, you know, we think this is bad. We don't believe Russian propaganda. We're going to put sanctions on Russia. We don't believe this is, you know, this is right. And that was fine. So it wasn't quite appeasement. It was more, you know, we're standing with Ukraine. Then the Ukrainian president came in on the last day of the summit and said, okay, I'm glad you all are united. I'm glad you all feel, you know, your alliance is strengthened, but none of you are going to help us and we're going to be alone. Um, and, and we just want you to know, you know, we are going to be fighting for your safety and for your democracy and for your freedom and we will be doing it by ourselves. And it was a very shattering and stunning moment. Um, it was his first appearance on the stage. He's now, you know, in, a, in, a, in that kind, with that kind of prominent role, I think, um, he's now done it several more times um, on, in, in, in the video clips that he's showing um, to his people and to the world. And in, in your view, is that what began to galvanize the West to take more aggressive action, or did something else happen? No, I, th I think what happened was, you know, at that moment, everybody went home kind of slightly ashamed, and they said, well, you know, this is really awful. But of course, at that moment, nobody knew whether the invasion would really happen or what it would look like. We are now only, what is it, 10 days later or something? And everything is different because of the way the Ukrainians behaved. So this is a real example of how the actions of a few people, um, you know, or actually of many people, can change the perception of a country and, and even the perception of politics. So Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's a very interesting person. Um, he's, a, he's a former comic actor. He was famous for starring in a television series. Um, Zelensky, uh, you know, who, and, and many people under, underestimate him. You know, he's a kind of clown. You know, he's just a guy who tells funny jokes. He won the, the Ukrainian version. There's a program called Dancing with the Stars. You know, he wore a pink jumpsuit and so on. It's a great super cut online. If you yeah, it's very, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and he, you know, so no one took him seriously. And then suddenly, 24 hours after the siege, he made a video of himself with his sort of, you know, you know colleagues around him. He said, it was very short. He said, I'm the president of Ukraine. It was in front of the presidential palace. I am here. Here's the prime minister. Here's the chief of staff. You know, here's the head of our parliamentary faction. Here's the defense minister. We're here. We're not going anywhere. We're going to defend our country. And then he says, you know, glory to Ukraine. And it was so short and so moving. And it really, it galvanized people. And suddenly people saw, wait, they're serious. They're going to really do it. Um, and then for the last week, as I said, we've had scenes of Ukrainians in villages standing in front of Russian tanks and shouting, go home, you know, your occupiers. Um, we've had Ukrainians capturing Russian soldiers and interrogating them and making videos saying, you know, what are you doing here? Who are you? Um, we've had... Um, as I said, you know, Ukrainian baristas and sociologists, you know, putting on uniforms and, and joining the territorial army. And it's made everybody suddenly think differently about Ukraine. And you've had this sea change in European politics. So the European Union is now sending weapons to Ukraine, which it wasn't doing before. 
The Germans are sending weapons to Ukraine, which they weren't doing before. Germany has now announced that it's quadrupling and quintupling its defense budget. Um, it's suddenly realized that actually the world is a dangerous place and there are, there are threats to stability and, and to democracy that are greater than a stock market collapse. <laughs> um, you know, we've had a sudden reorientation in world politics and, it's, it's, and it really has happened because of a few people changing the way the world thought about them. I mean, it's a real lesson in um, how, you know, one person and a handful of people can make a big difference. History tells us Germany quintupling its, its military may, may have some risks, but we'll take it for, sure. for right now. There are a lot of jokes being told about that yes. right now, yes. Um, uh, so, so how did Putin miscalculate so epically badly here? Well, for those of you here in the room who are interested in leadership and how leadership can fail, and I, sp I expect some of you are, this is a lesson in how a leader can become so isolated um, and who can begin to believe his own propaganda. So Putin, we, we know that for the last two years, he was very afraid of COVID. And he spent two years living in a kind of bunker. You weren't allowed to see him unless you were in quarantine for two weeks. Um, the only information he got was from, you know, people who were afraid to give him bad news. Um, and he became more and more isolated from reality. And he seems to have completely misunderstood what is Ukraine, who are the Ukrainians, how are they going to react when I invade. And he seems to have genuinely believed that the war would be over in two days, um, so much so that there were Russian um, official newspapers already ready with articles that were going to be printed, you know, three days after the invasion, proclaiming victory and saying a new epoch has dawned, a new era is with us. We're reuniting Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and, you know, we're, we're reconstituting the Soviet Union, in effect. So is, is, is Howard Hughes like the right historical Howard, Howard, think Howard Hughes. Think somebody who's become so isolated from reality and so dependent on the material that he's been fed by people who are afraid of him, in essence, that he no longer understands the world. So in the past, when Putin has met with resistance, um, Chechnya, Aleppo, um, he's bombed, right? So why, why are we not seeing that as we're, we're so hearing? So we're beginning to see it. And so one of the fears is that so that was plan A. Plan A failed. And one of the things people are now afraid of is that plan B will be very violent and destructive because n now it's unclear what can be done. Um, and there's been bombardment in several southern Ukrainian cities as well in the city of Kharkiv, which is a big city. They're, they may be reluctant to bomb Kiev, which is the capital um, it's, a, it's a very ancient city. Um, the Russians themselves feel they descend from people who founded that city and they may not want to see it go up in flames. Um, but but there's, a, there's a lot of fear now that the next phase will be, bomb, will, will be, will be a, a kind of mass bombing campaign. And, and so in the meantime, as Russian troops are backed up with fuel shortages, food shortages, they're, they're kind of sitting ducks. Why isn't the West coming in and bombing proactively to try to repel Russia? Because we're afraid of nuclear war. Um, and so that's what is one of the things that makes this conflict different from other wars in recent memory is that we are in direct competition with a nuclear power that has a lot of nuclear weapons. And Putin has been repeatedly saying, including in the last 48 hours, that he's willing to use them. I mean, we think that's a bluff. You know, it's a, it's a way of making people afraid and making us um, want to stay out of the conflict. But... Um, you know, there's, there's, there is a, other than cowardice, well, there's a little bit of that too, there is a reason why no Western country wants to be seen openly 
provoking Russia or openly fighting Russian troops. I mean, we're, we're in Hollywood and it's a trope, of, it's a Chekhov, right? it's a coincidentally Russian, that if you show the gun in the first act, you have to fire it in, in the next right. act, right? So right. should we be taking Putin seriously with this threat? I, I sort of, I, I'm reluctant to sound too apocalyptic. Um, I think we should take it seriously, but not be intimidated by it. In other words, um, you know, a lot of other things will have to happen before we get there. Among other things, his general staff would have to agree to that too. And although we don't know a lot about them, um, we can guess that there are people among them who would not want that to happen. So speaking of his general staff, um, uh, thinking of oligarchs who are losing yachts, whose kids won't be going to fancy Western college. A lot of people are losing a lot of money. Yes. Right. Uh, is... Is Putin gettable? Is, is, there, is there an inside threat to Putin from the oligarchs or from, from the military? So this, of course, is, this is unanswerable, precisely for the reasons that we've just described. Um, he's been very isolated. So it used to be five or six years ago that I would know people who knew people who talked to Putin in Moscow. I mean, he had enough conversations. You know, you could hear stuff about him. You know, his, we, we knew what he was thinking kind of from... Now he's very cut off. Um, and you've all seen maybe those photographs of him sitting at these very long tables and you know, he's at one end and everybody else is at the other end. Um, I, uh, that's apparently because of COVID. It may also be I'm now beginning to wonder that he's afraid of being assassinated. And it was striking um, in, in the run-up to the invasion how specific President Biden was about the intelligence that, that we have is there any inkling that that was a signal to Putin? We're on the inside and we can yes. get you? Yes. So this was, I didn't know, for those of you who don't follow these things all the time, what Biden did in the run-up to this war um, was extraordinary. So the Americans began already in late November and in December to say very loudly they were talking to the French, the British, the Germans, and of course the Ukrainians, and they were saying, we have intelligence, there's going to be a war, here's what it's going to look like, here's what's going to happen on the first day, here's which battalion groups are going to be involved, um, this is how it's going to play out. And apparently what they, ha what they were getting was direct orders that were being given from Moscow to troops, you know, to, to, to people on the ground. And, and it's very unusual for anybody to reveal that kind of information. You know, they have it. Because uh, it, it could reveal sources well, and methods. it could methods. reveal sources could... and methods and so on. And normally you wouldn't do that. But there seemed to have been two objectives. One was to galvanize the Western world um, and warn the Ukrainians and get people prepared. Um, and secondly, as you say, maybe it was a message to Putin saying, we know who you are and we have some way of getting to you. And that may have been designed to make him afraid of the people around him. And, and just to the extent you know, CIA, Mossad, I mean, <laughs> is there an external force that, that Putin could view as a threat? Or is there a threat from the Russian people rising up to, to get at him? So he is afraid of the Russian people. And we know that because li literally today he banned the two or three remaining independent newspapers, independent media in Russia. There's now none at all. Um, I have a friend who's married to a prominent Russian journalist who's, who has been made persona non grata. He's actually outside of the country in Ukraine. Um, uh, anybody who who describe who who in fact anybody who describes this war as an invasion, he's so Russian television is describing it as a kind of police operation. Anybody who describes it as an invasion or as a war risks prison. 
Um, yesterday, a couple of women with their small children went to the Ukrainian embassy to sort of lay flowers and write a little card saying, you know, no war. Um, they were all arrested, including the children, and they haven't been seen since. So Putin is extremely paranoid about protest. He's extremely paranoid about public opinion. He's not telling people what's going on. Of course, they have other channels of information. Um, I was just saying before we, uh, when we were talking before, um, there is a, a kind of a kind of celebrity Instagram um, celebrity blogger, you know, who puts up cute pictures of himself on um, and has something like five million followers. The Ryan Reynolds of Russia. S something like that. He, 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 and he put up yesterday, he put up a picture of a bombed out building in Kiev. Um, and so that means that some piece of the Russian population who, who aren't the ones who watching, you know, um, independent media or, or listening to, to illegal radio stations um, is also going to find out what's going on. So Russia has run a very, I mean, devastatingly effective disinformation campaign in the Inside US. Inside Russia. And, well, and, and in the US. Why isn't, or is the US running an actual information campaign across Telegram, WhatsApp, YouTube, whatever channels they can get to there? So that's an excellent question, and it's one that I'm going to ask in an article in a, in a few days. Um, one of the things that the U.S. doesn't have anymore is a way to speak to ordinary Russians. Um, during the Cold War, not only that, we, we thought a lot about how to communicate with people, um, not just in Russia, actually, but in, you know, in other countries. How do we talk to them? We, had, we created you know, Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty. These were radio stations that, that used exiles and so on to, to talk to people in their own languages. And although those things still exist, they're very small. Um, they have very little funding. And of course, you know, radio and even television isn't the way most people get their information anymore, even, and that's true outside the United States. And what we don't have is a social media operation that's designed to reach ordinary Russians or, or anybody, really. Do, do the Germans, do the French, do, do, do the Brits? Is there, does anyone? No, it's, it, no it's, all very, um, it's all very kind of 1980s. I mean, people still have, you know, there's the BBC and there's Deutsche Welle and there's Radio France International. Um, but they, you know, nobody thought after 1991 that these things were very important anymore. And nobody has thought very hard about community. Maybe this is something Hollywood should be doing. Or it's an investment opportunity for the, for the <laughs> investors in the room. So, you know, so if anybody's interested, I mean, I, I know lots of people who are thinking about this right now and are looking for means of communication. How would you set up a, you know, a, a, a campaign to reach people in Russia? And in a place where um, Facebook has just been banned, actually, and Twitter, I think, has been banned as well. So you'd have to use their social media channels um, and their... Uh, they do use YouTube, um, and some of the biggest and most popular celebrities use YouTube, including their most famous dissident, who's now in jail, who has a YouTube channel with six million followers. Um, so, so there are ways of getting to people. So what's, let's, let's assume for the moment that this is an extended battle, that, that Kiev doesn't fall quickly, that the Ukrainians are at least sufficiently successful. What's Putin's way out of this? Well, that's one of the interesting questions. Um, you know, it's only been a week, um, and it's already lasted five days longer than it was supposed to, and he doesn't seem to have a plan B. You know, plan A was take Kiev, you know, incorporate it into Russia, game over. Um, he doesn't have a plan B, and maybe there will be some kind of negotiation in which he's given something, some, you know, the recognition of Crimea, um, some border guarantees, something, maybe that would be enough to get him to step down. But the reason you were asking those questions earlier about, you know, 
can't someone bump him off, essentially, is that what people increasingly fear is that because of his obsession with Ukraine, because of his obsession with the idea that you know, democracy is an enemy that he needs to fight against, that he doesn't have a way out because he's not thinking like you or I would. You know, he's not thinking this is a negotiation, what can I get out of it? He's thinking this is, you know, this is the goal of my whole life. You know, this, is, this will ensure my power until I die. You know, this will be the thing that, in which I leave my mark on history. And remember something else about him. We all think of politics as, you know, what does a politician do? Well, they try and get reelected, so they try and raise the GDP, or they try and find out what voters want, and they try and give the voters what they want. That's not how he thinks. He's not interested in what his voters want. He's not interested in Russian prosperity. He's not interested in the Russian stock market, as we've just learned. He's interested in his own power, his own glory, and the guarantees that he'll remain there. Um, and that means that his calculations about are, are, are very different from ours. And that's the, the, the fear is that it's going to be very hard for him to step down. So we're, we're roughly an hour away from President Biden addressing the nation, State of the Union. Um, let's imagine he's headed over the Capitol and he calls you hmm. and he says, um, Anne, how am I doing and what should I be doing differently? In this or more generally? Well, let's, let's, let's stick with... We, we let's only stick have five this. more minutes, so we let's only stick with more. this. So, I, so if I were Biden and I had the chance to speak about this tomorrow, I assume this isn't going to dominate his speech, actually. I think there's some other issues. First of all, I would say COVID is over, but anyway, uh, and time to, time, to, time to adjust to that. But secondly, I would say... I would try to explain to Americans why this matters for us, you know, why the respect for borders, why the containment of, auto of autocracy, you know, why this is a threat to the way we do business, the way we think about the world, why the threat to Europe matters to us, you know, um, you know remembering that everybody else is watching what Putin does, the Chinese are watching, um, they're watching our reaction. It will, it will shape how they think about Taiwan um, and maybe other places. Um, other autocrats, whether in Venezuela or Iran um, or, or Belarus or Burma, are also watching too. Um, the, the autocratic world in recent years has, been, has grown more self-confident, um, less worried about you know, being criticized, more able to share its, um, you know, the, you know, its, its, its economic interests. You know, the Chinese now sell surveillance technology to everybody. You know, the Russians will help everybody get around sanctions if they need to. Um, even countries that don't have much to do with one another historically, you know, think about Iran, Russia, Venezuela. You know, what are they, you know, they don't have the same political systems, they don't have the same language, they don't have any links, yet they help together one another, they work, they work together, they help one another. Um, because they have the same common interest in pushing back against the democratic world. And I, I, I want Biden to raise that issue and make sure that Americans understand that. And substantively, is there, how would you grade how he's done and, and what, what's the note you would give him to do differently, if anything? So I think, you know, given the bad hand that he was dealt, given the weakening of American alliances during the Trump administration, um, given the lack of interest that we've had in, in Russia for a long time, I think he's done extremely well, actually. I also believe that he is helping the Ukrainians militarily in ways that we don't see. I think they're, I, I assume they're helping them with intelligence, including operational military intelligence. Um, and I, I, I admire the, the way in which they used intelligence openly also in the run-up to this. So I, I think, as I said, given the bad situation, um, I think he's done well. So in, given that 
two weeks ago, um, uh, before the last day of Munich, we would have been, I think, fairly pessimistic about the West being galvanized, Germany stepping up, Turkey getting involved, right? Is this, is this now a renaissance for NATO and, and for Western alliance? I mean, it's, in a way, that's not good because the reason NATO is reviving is because suddenly people feel a threat again. But yes, it is. Um, we, we now see things that were unimaginable a few days ago, as I've said, happening. You know, that we see NATO working together. We see the Europeans working together. We see a sense of common purpose around the idea that um, democracy is important, that borders matter, that... Um, that that unchecked aggression can't be allowed to shape the world order. So we, we a couple of hours ago, Barbara Walter was up here and we were talking about how civil wars start and how to stop them. And, you know, look, the U.S. is in a precarious moment still, even with more stable leadership and, and more norms being followed. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about the ways out and reasons for hope and what people can do. Do you draw hope for the U.S. out of what's happening in Europe today? Is it, is it a, a light for, for how things can change and how we can move forward? The, what's, I draw hope from the speed of change and from the inspiration that Zelensky, remember, you know, Jewish comedian from a provincial town. Not trivial that he's Jewish here, by the way. Not trivial. It's, it's, it's actually de- tells you something important about Ukraine, which is that to be Ukrainian, you don't have to be an ethnic Ukrainian. You can just be, if you're a patriot, you know, you can be our president. Um, and that spirit, that kind of civic patriotism, you know, anybody who works together and anybody who wants to join our cause can be one of us. Um, I think it's a very inspiring message, and I hope, I hope Americans are able to hear it. So you, you have a group before you of um, disproportionately connected, powerful, influential, wealthy people. Um, what, what's the one thing that we can walk out of here and do tonight that can move things in either the Ukrainian direction or in the direction of liberal democracy? So believe it or not, you can contribute to the Ukrainian military effort. There is a charity called Come Back Alive, um, which, it, which collects money for, um, you know, for, for protective equipment and other other supplies for the military. You can, you can do that, and many people I know have done. Um, and you can also talk about it, you know, tell people why it matters. Um, pay attention to the Ukrainian social media, which also is a, you know, we were talking about social media campaigns. I mean, what they've been doing is pretty extraordinary. They, they've made little videos. They try to appeal to people. They try to reach people. Pay attention to how, what they're doing. How is it that they've, they've galvanized their country? How is it that they've pulled together? This is also, by the way, a very polarized country with very bad politics and people who hate each other, just like we do. Um, and again, three weeks ago, people were saying, well, Zelensky, he's going to be a terrible wartime leader because, you know, there's so many fractions in the country and they're so divided. And yet they pulled together. And so study that, think about it, and, you know, maybe we can learn something. It is the rare venture conference that brings people like Ann and Barbara <laughs> to have these conversations. So thank you for coming. Thank you all for being here. And thanks Upfront for hosting. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.